0: Cystic fibrosis affects nearly 70,000 people across the globe, with more than 30,000 in the US alone. While many providers equate cystic fibrosis as a pulmonary-only disorder, its impact on other organs such as the pancreas, liver, and gastrointestinal tract cannot be understated. Let's listen in as our internal medicine pharmacist extraordinaire, Dr. Ashley Otto, reviews non-pulmonary cystic fibrosis complications and provides an evidence-based approach for treatment recommendations.
1: So I think when we typically hear the word cystic fibrosis, we think of respiratory tract infections, chest wall oscillation, and vest therapy. And while that does make up a large percentage of the mortality rates and complications that we see in our cystic fibrosis patient population, there are extra-pulmonary complications that do affect mortality as well as quality of life. So for today's discussion, I would like for us to describe the pathophysiology of some of our non-pulmonary complications, look a little bit at what our guideline recommendations, our consensus statements, and primary literature say about the management of these disease states so that we can apply that to make treatment decisions for our individual patients. To describe cystic fibrosis in just a short couple statements, um, this is an autosomal recessive genetic disorder that does require the use of two mutated genes in order to develop cystic fibrosis. It affects anywhere from 70,000 individuals worldwide, of which a large percentage of those individuals are living here in the United States. And up until somewhat recently, the lifespan of individuals with cystic fibrosis was relatively short, but due to the advancements in medical therapy as well as surgical advancements, we are seeing that more than 50% of individuals with a cystic fibrosis diagnosis are living beyond the age of 18 years. The pathophysiology of our non-pulmonary complications is very similar to that of the pathophysiology of our respiratory complications. So I thought that we would kind of describe that pathophysiology here shortly. So as you can see here, we do have our airway lumen and the interstitium, which is where the majority of the mucus secretions that we do have lays in the lungs. And we do have the Cystic Fibrosis Transmembrane Conductance Regulator Protein or the CFTR Protein that lays between the airway lumen and the interstitium. The CFTR Protein is responsible for the appropriate movement of chloride ions into the interstitium which allows for water to subsequently be brought into the interstitium. And this is what helps us with a thinning of the mucus in that area. And this is what allows you to be able to appropriately cough up and remove that phlegm that you typically have. Unfortunately, in cystic fibrosis, we do have a mutation called the Delta F508 mutation. And this is a misfolding mutation of that CFTR protein. And so what that means is that mutation and that misfolding of the protein prevents that appropriate movement of chloride ions through to the interstitium, meaning that we do have less water that is brought into the area, and subsequently a thickening of the mucus in the lungs. And unfortunately, the CFTR protein is found in a variety of different organ systems in the body, not just the lungs. And so therefore, we have very similar complications throughout the body. For today's discussion, and due to time, we're going to only focus on three of these specific complications, those that pertain to the liver, the pancreas, and then the intestines, specifically distal intestinal obstructive syndrome. So the first non-pulmonary complication that I'm gonna discuss today is cystic fibrosis-related liver disease, or CFLD, and this is actually the third leading cause of mortality among individuals with a cystic fibrosis diagnosis, with the incidence increasing by about 1% for each year of life. This is due to the loss of CFTR function specifically in the cholangiocytes, which will lead to biliary retention, obstruction, and subsequent biliary sludge. Further leading to periportal fibrosis and, in more severe cases, multilobular cirrhosis. Typically, these individuals will present asymptomatically, um, but the first sign that potentially would be seen by providers would be hepatomegaly with or without splenomegaly, as well as with or without increases in AST, ALT, and GGT levels. Individuals with CFLD potentially will also have some of our other liver-related complication symptoms, including jaundice, abdominal distension, and ascites. And CFLD can manifest in a variety of different ways, ranging from hepatic steatosis to neonatal cholestasis in our pediatric patient population, and then in our more severe cases, multilobular cirrhosis, which accounts for about 5 to 15% of cases of CFLD. CFLD can actually be further classified into two groups, those that do have a diagnosis of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, and those without cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Those with a diagnosis of cirrhosis and portal hypertension can be made based off of your typical clinical exam findings and radiology and histology findings that allow for you to make that diagnosis of cirrhosis or portal hypertension. For those without a cirrhosis or portal hypertension diagnosis, they must have at least one of the following. So either persistently elevated liver function enzymes that are at least two times the upper limit of normal, or intermittently elevated liver function enzymes, but our guideline and consensus statements don't describe what persistently or intermittently elevated does stand for, so that is up to a clinician's discretion. Individuals could also have steatosis, fibrosis, cholangiopathy, or any other ultrasound abnormality that would be not consistent with a diagnosis of a cirrhosis. And for our CFLD management and for the other non-pulmonary complications that we'll discuss in the upcoming slides, you can visit cysticfibrosisfoundation.org for up-to-date guidelines, consensus statements, as well as primary literature to help guide your management of the nonpulmonary complications. Interestingly, the CFLD guidelines have not been updated in some time, specifically since 1999, um, but in 2017 we did have a consensus statement that was updated in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis that provides us on some guidance of how we should manage these individuals. The first is ensuring that we have appropriate referral, specifically to a hepatology specialist who can assist us in either a liver biopsy or imaging studies so that we can appropriately classify individuals with CFLD as with cirrhosis or portal hypertension and for those without. From a nutritional perspective, we recognize that individuals with liver disease typically do require an increase in caloric intake by about 50 percent, and that is no different among these individuals with a CFLD diagnosis. Similarly to our individuals who have general underlying liver dysfunction, individuals with CFLD do typically have low stores of the fat-soluble vitamins, so we should be evaluating and appropriately repleting these fat-soluble vitamins. Liver disease reduction is also a wonderful opportunity for pharmacist involvement in care specifically, so ensuring that we have appropriate hepatitis A and B status that is documented, as well as appropriate immunization as needed, as well as counseling providers and patients on the appropriate avoidance of alcohol, hepatotoxic substances, and evaluating individuals' medication list for hepatotoxic medications. The medication of choice that I would like to discuss a little bit about today is a medication called ursodeoxycholic acid, or UDCA. The European guidelines on CFLD management do recommend the use of this agent, but in 1999, the guidelines that were described or written unfortunately didn't comment on the use of UDCA at this time. The 2017 consensus statement, however, does state that there is a low level of evidence for the use of UDCA therapy. But unfortunately, they don't provide a specific recommendation on whether or not we should use this agent in the CFLD patient population. So I thought I would take a couple slides to describe what UDCA therapy is, what does the efficacy data say, what does the safety data say, so that hopefully we can make a decision on whether or not we specifically would recommend the use in this patient population. So ursodeoxycholic acid, or UDCA, also known as ursodiol in clinical practice, this is a naturally occurring bile acid that is proposed to assist in the management of CFLD by increasing the hepato and cholangiocellular secretion, allowing for an increase in bile flow and subsequent prevention, hopefully, of obstructive pictures. The typical dosing ranges anywhere from 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram per day in divided doses, either BID or TID with a max daily dose of 450 milligrams per day typically seen in clinical practice. Compare this to our typical dosing in primary biliary cirrhosis, where we utilize a 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram per day dosing. And as you'll see in upcoming slides, the 10 milligram per kilogram per day dosing was not as effective, and so that is why we are using the higher end of the range for our individuals with CFLD. When you do have an individual that is presenting to Mayo Clinic Rochester specifically for the management of a cystic fibrosis admission, part of the Mayo Clinic Rochester CF admission order set does have ursodeoxycholic acid or UDCA, ursodiol, listed as a treatment option for your initiation at a dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram per day, BID with a max of 450 milligrams a day. The typical adverse reaction profile that's listed in package inserts as being most frequent includes our GI side effects, including nausea and dyspepsia, as well as headache and dizziness also being relatively common. And so as I had said previously, the European guidelines recommend the use of UDCA. Our 1999 guidelines don't even comment on the use of UDCA, but our 2017 consensus statement does say that there's a low level of evidence for its use. And this does come from a 2017 Cochrane review that said that the low level of evidence is due to the small number of trials that are available to us um, that are uh, published at this time, the small number of patient populations within each of those trials, as well as the short durations of therapy that are evaluated in what primary literature we do have available to us. So I thought that it would be helpful to kind of pull out two of the larger studies to evaluate for effectiveness data. So the first of which was uh, by Colombo and colleagues in 1996. This was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of 55 male individuals with CFLD. This specifically evaluated the use of UDCA at 15 milligrams per kilogram per day in combination with taurine versus UDCA plus placebo, taurine plus placebo, or placebo plus placebo for a one-year duration. Taurine was specifically used as a comparator in this trial because taurine deficiency is typically seen in our individuals with CFLD and it's thought that it potentially could allow for the appropriate conjugation of some of our bile acids in individuals with more severe liver disease. And what we did see with this trial was that there was a reduction in liver function enzymes reported, an increase in clinical stability associated with our more cystic fibrosis-related patient scaling scores, as well as no severe adverse effects reported with the use of UDCA at this specific dosing schedule. Similarly, in 1997 by Vandermeerberg and colleagues, we have a single-center randomized controlled trial of 30 male individuals with CFLD. But this was specifically evaluating the different dosing strategies that are available uh, for UDCA. So evaluating our lower end of the goal at 10 milligrams per kilogram per day versus 20 milligrams per kilogram per day to evaluate can we actually get away with a lower dose of UDCA and possibly have a lower number of side effects. But What was seen actually at the end of the study was that the higher dosing of UDCA saw a statistically significant reduction in liver function enzymes and did not have any increase in adverse effects reported with its use. So at this point in time, if I had to make kind of a decision about what I thought about the efficacy data, I really feel that there is some good data for the use of UDCA therapy at this time, but we really don't have a lot of information about safety. At this from these two specific studies, and we really don't have any long-term data for the use of UDCA. So what do we have for safety data? 2010, by Sayano and colleagues, was a single-center retrospective cohort of 26 individuals with cystic fibrosis and this was kind of evaluating when should we start UDCA therapy? Should we start it early, before a CFLD diagnosis, or should we actually wait until a CFLD diagnosis has already occurred to then initiate UDCA therapy? And they specifically used a mean dose of about 15 milligrams per kilogram per day. And what you were able to see was that the prevalence of chronic liver disease occurred much less frequently, in fact 40% versus 0% for those individuals who did start UDCA therapy earlier prior to a diagnosis, and there were no differences in side effect profiles for those who were on longer durations of UDCA therapy in comparison to that of who had shorter durations of UDCA therapy. Again, Colombo and colleagues reported a study in 2016. This was a single center prospective observational study of 20 individuals with CFLD, 13 of which already had a diagnosis of cirrhosis. And this was actually the study that we have the longest data for. So this was UDCA therapy at 20 milligrams per kilogram per day, with a duration of at least two years, with a median of eight years, which I think is a relatively long study for us to have some data for. And what was interesting about this study also was that it was evaluating the bile acid components that each individual had, during the duration and at the end of UDCA therapy because it was thought that certain bile acids possibly promote an increase in adverse effect pearls associated with UDCA therapy, specifically the lithocholic acid component. But at the end of this study, we did see that the primary serum bile acid was UDCA. There were no significant increases in lithocholic acid concentrations. And at the end of the at least two-year duration, we didn't see any increases in adverse effects. In fact, the adverse effect profile was relatively mild. So again, if I had to kind of make a, an overarching statement about whether or not I would recommend the UDCA in our individuals with CFLD, I would say that I think that 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram per day appears to be safe as well as relatively effective for our individuals with CFLD. I do just wish that we had a, you know, some data that was a little bit more long-term. So moving into our first audience participation question, so if everyone would like to pull out their smartphones or devices, or you can join us at pollev.com forward slash or you can text MayoRx to 22333 to join. So our first question here today is, which of the following describes the pathophysiology of cystic fibrosis-related liver disease? A, a gain of CFTR function leading to biliary obstruction and subsequent fibrosis and cirrhosis. B, a loss of CFTR function leading to biliary obstruction and subsequent fibrosis and cirrhosis. C, a loss of CFTR function leading to an increase in biliary secretion and subsequent fibrosis and cirrhosis. Or D, a gain of CFTR function leading to biliary obstruction and then improvement in overall liver function. So we'll go ahead and take a a couple seconds or up to a minute to allow your answers to come in. All right, as we see some of the answers coming in, I will say that I'll agree with the majority and say that I would say that B would be the appropriate answer here. A loss of CFTR function leading to biliary obstruction and subsequent fibrosis and cirrhosis. A and D would be incorrect. In this instance because we would not have a gain of CFTR function, we would have a loss of CFTR function, and we would not be seeing an improvement in overall liver function. We would be seeing the opposite of that. And then C, I would say, would be incorrect because we don't see an increase in biliary secretion. We actually see an increase in biliary sludge formation that is impaired in transit and would have more of an obstructive picture than an increase in movement. Wonderful. So the next non-pulmonary complication I would like to take some time to discuss today is pancreatic insufficiency. And pancreatic insufficiency is actually one of the more common complications associated with cystic fibrosis. So typically your pancreas secretes pancreatic enzymes in order to break down fats and proteins and carbohydrates as part of your diet. But in pancreatic insufficiency associated with cystic fibrosis, there's a loss of the CFTR function specifically in the pancreatic ducts. This impairs the appropriate transport of chloride and bicarbonate secretion. And unfortunately, that impaired bicarbonate secretion can lead to an inactivation of what viable lipases the pancreas secretes, thereby increasing the intestinal lipid insolubility and fat malabsorption that we see in these individuals. Patients will typically present with weight loss, gas and bloating, dyspepsia, as well as steatoria, and in more severe cases, you can see failure to thrive. And we can classify our individuals with pancreatic possible insufficiency associated with uh, cystic fibrosis into kind of two categories, pancreatic insufficient and those who still do have sufficient pancreatic activity. Individuals who are diagnosed with pancreatic insufficiency have two C- severe CFTR mutations that come from classes one, two, three, and 6. And just for today's time, we don't have uh, the opportunity to go into those specific mutations. Uh, But these patients typically have a diagnosis earlier on in life. Those who are pancreatic sufficient will have two mild CFTR mutations coming from classes 4 and 5, or they may have one severe and one mild mutation. And these individuals are typically able to grow and maintain their normal health without the use of supplemental enzyme replacement therapy. Very similar to that of our CFLD, our guidelines haven't been updated in some time, specifically since 1995, but again we did have a consensus statement in 2017 published in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis that's able to provide us with some more up-to-date recommendations on management. Diagnosis can occur in two, uh, one of two ways, a 72-hour stool fat estimation, which is typically the gold standard in our research population. And in comparison to that, the fecal elastase I test is actually what's more commonly done in clinical practice just due to the ease of administration as well as the, the cost of it being much more inexpensive in comparison to the 72-hour stool fat estimation. Again, these individuals tend to be depleted of their fat-soluble vitamins, so we should be ensuring appropriate evaluation and repletion of those. And Pancreatic Enzyme Replacement Therapy, or PERT, is really going to be the overarching management strategy for these individuals who do classify as pancreatic insufficient. So a little bit of information about what is Pancreatic Enzyme Replacement Therapy, or PERT. I do have our five FDA-approved products listed here for your reference. Creon and Zenpep are typically the most commonly used in clinical practice, as well as what's most commonly insurance companies are typically recommending for use. These are enteric-coated gelatin capsules that are porcine-derived. Unfortunately, at this time, we do not have any FDA-approved products that are not derived from porcine products or from halal animals um, at this time. There are products that are over-the-counter that do state that they are not porcine-derived and that they are able to be used for individuals who are looking for non-porcine-derived products. However, these, these products have been evaluated in studies and have been shown that they do not have the sufficient enzyme activity to be recommended in clinical practice. Dosing is typically in units of lipase per capsule in units of 1,000, and other counseling points that we should have for patients include that these should be taken just during or immediately after a meal, and that you may open these capsules and mix them with a small amount of acidic foods including applesauce or even yogurt in some cases. The 2017 Consensus Statement also provides us with with some information on how we should dose PERT products. So I have listed here the three typical ways that we dose PERT. The first of which is by body weight, which is actually what's commonly done in clinical practice. This is 500 to 2500 units of lipase per kilogram per meal, with half of that content being administered with snacks, as typically we would say a snack is at least half, if not less than what your typical meal is supposed to be. Dosing by meal fat content is also a viable option for dosing. and You can see here it's dosed in units of lipase per gram of fat ingested per day. This is actually what's going to mimic your more natural pancreatic enzyme response, but unfortunately it can be difficult for patients to not only have to calculate the grams of fat that they have per day or per meal, but then have to calculate then what does that mean for units of lipase that they then have to ingest. And the last dosing strategy that I have listed is dosing based on pancreatic lipase output, which I will say in clinical practice is not typically done, um, and it's also not been as established in our cystic fibrosis patient population. If you're looking for what PERT products we do have available here at Mayo Clinic Rochester, I do have listed, we have Zenpep and Creon in a handful of the different dosings. We don't have all of the different strengths, but we have a large percentage of them so that you're typically able to make up whatever type of units of lipase per meal would be uh, needed. For individuals who are on a different PERT product outpatient and they come inpatient and don't have their own supply, what we can do is we can evaluate what their units of lipase per meal or per day is and convert that to a units of lipase in whatever product we do have available here in formulary. What's also interesting about PERT is that we typically use the information associated with pancreatic insufficiency not related to cystic fibrosis to provide us with recommendations for our cystic fibrosis patient population. So I thought it would be interesting if we could find some information specifically in the population that we're discussing today. And there was a study in 2016 by Taylor and colleagues that was a active controlled crossover non-inferiority study of 96 individuals with cystic fibrosis and pancreatic insufficiency. And this was evaluating our two commonly used PERP products in clinical practice, ZemPep and Creon, to evaluate if one of these treatment options would be – or if these treatment options are relatively non-inferior to one another. You can see individuals were first grouped into receiving either ZemPep or Creon, They received this therapy for 28 days and at the 28 day mark they did cross over to the different PERT product that was being evaluated and then received that therapy for an additional 28 days. And throughout the study they were evaluating the coefficient of fat absorption at 72 hours, which is information that you can obtain from that 72 hour stool fat test that we described as being a diagnostic uh, indicator. You can see here that the CFA at 72 hours for Zenpep and Creon was very similar, around 85 percent, showing non-inferiority between the two products, uh, as well as the number of stools being relatively similar, the number of days with patient bloating, as well as just overall health being great for individuals with uh, on-perp for cystic fibrosis. This 85% also falls into our typical range of where we would like to see individuals. We would like their CFA at 72 hours to be anywhere from 80 to 90% to ensure us that we're having appropriate absorption of fats with the use of PERP products. So I think that this does go to show that at least our Zenpep and Creon products in our cystic fibrosis patient population can be helpful for those with pancreatic insufficiency. So for our next, question for today, again, go ahead and pull out your devices or join us online or text us at MayoRx at 22333. So based on the 2017 consensus statements for pancreatic insufficiency and cystic fibrosis, which of the following would be an appropriate management for pancreatic insufficiency? Evaluation and repletion of our water-soluble vitamins. Increase the fat in the diet to promote pancreatic activity. PERT products, for example, Creon, dosed at 500 to 2,500 units of amylase per kilogram per meal, and none with snacks. Or PERT therapy, for example, Zenpep, dosed at 500 to 2,500 units of lipase per kilogram per meal, and half of that content being administered with snacks. All right, we'll go ahead and kind of uh, have the last couple answers kind of trickling in. Um, I will say that I agree with the overwhelming majority that D would be an appropriate answer. So typically, we would need to be evaluating and repleting our fat-soluble vitamins. Increasing the fat in the diet will not allow for an increase in pancreatic pancreatic activity. In fact, it will likely make things worse. Um, And then C would be incorrect because we don't dose in units of amylase per kilogram per meal, and we would encourage that half of the content in lipase per unit per kilogram per meal be administered with snacks. Wonderful. All right, so for our last non-pulmonary complication that we're going to discuss today is on distal intestinal obstructive syndrome or DIOS. And the obstructive phenomena um, and the obstructive complications is really a typical phenotype of that of cystic fibrosis. So in our pediatric patient population, this typically uh, presents itself as meconium ileus and in our older children and our adult patient population as Distal Intestinal Obstructive Syndrome, or DIOS. And this affects about 10 to 15 percent of individuals with cystic fibrosis at any given time during their life. This is due to the loss of CFTR function, which leads to a decrease in chloride and fluid secretion, leading to dehydrated mucosa, mucus plugging, and viscous stool. And unfortunately, this prolongation of the gut transit and accumulation of this viscid stool will occur in the distal ileum and proximal colon and can lead to an obstructive picture. We recognize that about 10 to 15 percent of individuals with cystic fibrosis will develop dios or meconium ileus at some point in time in their life. So identifying those that will be at high risk of developing this complication, I think, is really important. And we recognize that individuals with more of a severe genotype or those who become dehydrated more easily or don't PO appropriately are going to be at higher risk of developing a DIOS episode. Similarly, we recognize that individuals with pancreatic insufficiency are at higher risk of developing DIOS as well. Due to the malabsorption of fat, this can actually activate what we call the ileal brake system, which is the natural inhibitory feedback mechanism that allows for the appropriate transit of fecal material through the GI system. And again, we also recognize that individuals with a history of meconium ileus or a history of Dios are going to be at high risk of developing future episodes. Specifically, they're at 10 times a higher risk of developing a future episode moving forward. What's also important is that we identify how to appropriately classify these individuals because the management strategies for the different classifications is going to vary dramatically. So we need to, we need to identify those that would fall more into a constipation-related picture and those that would fall into an actual dos related picture. Individuals with CF-related constipation are going to have the typical constipation symptoms including some abdominal pain and distension, possibly a reduction in the frequency of bowel movements that they may be having. But what's notable about this is that symptoms can be improved or relieved with the use of laxative therapy. Compare that to a DIOS episode, which can be further classified as incomplete DIOS or complete DIOS. And these individuals are going to have, again, more obstructive pictures that include abdominal pain and distension, as well as the inability to pass stool or flatulence, as well as some sort of obstructive picture on radiology of the abdomen. The big difference between incomplete DIOS and complete DIOS is going to be the presence of a complete obstructive picture with the possibility for vomiting of bilious material. And interestingly, when we try to figure out how to manage these individuals, there have never been any guidelines that have been published for how to appropriately manage them. But again, very similar to our other non-pulmonary complications, we do have a consensus statement that finally came out in 2017 to kind of help direct our management. As I had said before, diagnosis is going to be typically made based off of abdominal radiography as well as symptomatology, which was described on the previous slide. From a nutritional perspective, ensuring appropriate bowel rest for these individuals, as well as urgent nasogastric decompression for those who do have a true diagnosis of complete DOs. Medical management is going to be the mainstay of therapy with osmotic laxatives, including our polyethylene glycol products, as first-line therapy and second-line therapy including laxative agents and sorbitol. Diatrizoate sodium and diatrizoate megalamine or gastrographin is also another viable treatment option which we're going to discuss in future slides. And N-acetylcysteine is recommended in the 2017 consensus uh, statement. However, due to the fact that it does not have FDA approval and just due to time for today, we're gonna be unable to discuss that agent. But I would like to take a little bit of time to talk about diatrizoate megalamine and diatrizoate sodium or gastrographin, as I find that it's a really interesting agent for use in this specific patient population. It is a hypertonic iodine-containing contrast agent that is highly osmolar. And we think about why that's important. We typically have our hyperosmotic side of a lumen and our hypoosmotic side, with the hyperosmotic side being that that has a higher solute volume. So with that, it's going to have a net water flow towards the hyperosmotic side in order to balance out that solute. With gastrographin use, which is a highly osmolar agent, and by instilling that in the GI lumen, we're going to have a net water flow into the GI lumen with the hopes that we're going to be able to break down that viscid stool and prevent that obstruction from occurring or break down what obstruction we do have. The adverse effect profile is undefined in the package insert, but you will see GI-related side effects including diarrhea, and in more severe cases and with higher doses of gastrographin used hypotension just due to the fluid shifts that can occur. And the 2017 consensus statement really had to use what literature was available to provide us with recommendations and as you'll see here in the next handful of minutes, the literature is very sparse. It's very much limited to what small center case series and case reports as far as what they had to use to create their recommendations. So I'm gonna describe a couple of these here for your reference. Um, 1986 by O'Halloran and colleagues, this was a single center case series of 67 individuals with 37 episodes of DIOS utilizing oral gastrographin followed by oral volume repletion. 30 of the episodes or 81% a single episode or a single dose with 16% only requiring a second dose later. In 1989, Coletsko and colleagues reported a small case series with, of 22 individuals with cystic fibrosis. These individuals received isoasmotic polyethylene glycol at about 5.6 liters, either orally or nasogastrically, with an improvement in radiographic signs of obstruction as well as symptomatology. Similarly, in 2014 by Zara and colleagues, this was a single center case series of eight individuals with 12 episodes of DIOS, and this actually evaluated the use of a gastrograph and enema. With 100% of individuals seeing complete resolution, only three patients did require a subsequent dose 24 hours later. And lastly, in 2016, we actually had our first large clinical trial for the management of DIOS. This was an international multi-center prospective observational trial of 102 individuals with 112 episodes of DIOS. All of these individuals did have bowel rest along with uh, oral repletion. And you can see here the different interventions that were used: a gastrograph and enema gastrographin enema uh, with polyethylene glycol, polyethylene glycol alone, our oral osmotic laxatives, in colonoscopy or surgery in our more refractory cases. Our medical treatments were successful for all individuals that did have an incomplete DIOS classification. Of the people that had a complete DIOS classification, most of the patients did receive gastrographin, and medical failure only occurred in six individuals of those who were all complete DIOS classification, and they did require a colonoscopy or surgery, but did have resolution after the surgical procedure. So based on this small amount of effectiveness data that we do have, our 2017 consensus statements provided us with kind of a treatment algorithm of how we should manage individuals. So this is based off of incomplete DIOS. Uh, Our recommendations include oral rehydration, as well as a polyethylene glycol product or you can utilize gastrographin at 100 mLs on day one, either orally or nasogastrically, with half a dose on a subsequent day if needed. For individuals who do have a complete DOS classification, uh, the guidelines kind of split them into those who have vomiting, Uh, bilious material and those without vomiting of bilious material. For those who do not have the vomiting of bilious material, you'll see that this is very similar to our incomplete DIOS recommendations of oral rehydration in a polyethylene glycol product. But for those who fail this or for those who do have the vomiting of bilious material, there is a recommendation for IV rehydration at this time, nasogastric decompression, as well as a gastrographin enema, which per the guidelines is recommended as and 100 milliliters um, and can be done at the bedside or via an IR procedure based on institution-specific recommendations. And what I think is really a wonderful opportunity for us as practitioners is recognizing that DIOS begets DIOS. Individuals who who have a DIOS episode are 10 times more likely to develop a future episode. And kind of my catchphrase is be proactive and not reactive, so ensuring individuals are on prophylactic bowel regimens evaluating dehydration and the risk of dehydration for each individual and ensuring that they try to avoid that if possible. And we also recognize that individuals with pancreatic insufficiency are at higher risk of developing DOs, so ensuring that we have evaluated individuals with cystic fibrosis for a diagnosis of pancreatic insufficiency and thereafter are closely monitoring for the appropriate dosing of PERT products moving forward. So for our last audience participation question, it is a patient case, and it's a two-part question, um, so don't leave us at the end of the first part. Um, But AB is a 27-year-old female, past medical history significant for cystic fibrosis with pancreatic insufficiency, is being admitted from CF clinic for worsening abdominal pain and constipation. Her current symptoms include 10 out of 10 cramping abdominal pain with nausea but does not have vomiting. And she states that she hasn't had a lot of time to get to the grocery in the past week and she's been eating more fast food and has had limited water intake. You do a CT abdomen and pelvis and this reveals a large obstructing mass in the right iliocecal region with inspissated bilious material. So for our first question, given the current presentation, how would you classify AB's DIOS episode based on our 2017 consensus statement? CF related constipation, incomplete dios, complete dios, or CF-related diarrhea. All right. For time's sake, I think we're going to kind of move on here. Um, I think that this is a wonderful opportunity for some discussion. Um, So I would agree with people that CF-related constipation and CF-related diarrhea are not going to be appropriate answers here given that we do have an obstruction on imaging study as well as more of a constipation or constipation or obstructive-type picture versus that of diarrhea. In this specific case, I do think that I would think that B would be more of an appropriate answer in complete um, And I would say that complete DOs would not be appropriate here since we do not have uh, the vomiting of bilious material, though we do have this obstructive picture on imaging study, which would be classified as a DOs episode in general. So for our second part of the question here, during rounds though, AB now has had multiple episodes of bilious vomiting without improvement in symptoms despite multiple treatments of polyethylene glycol. So which of the following would now be an appropriate next treatment option for AB's D/s episode? Oral lactulose, titrated to bowel movements. B, IV rehydration, nasogastric decompression, and oral gastrographin. C, IV rehydration, nasogastric decompression, and a gastrographin enema, or retrial the polyethylene glycol orally and add rectal lactulose titrated to bowel movements. All right, I'm seeing lots of results kind of trickling in and it appears that um, all of us are on the same page with recommending C at this time. Um, so we kind of have moved past oral lax, um, osmotic laxatives as a treatment option, and we definitely need, we definitely have a more complete DOS episode picture here at this point in time now since we have the vomiting of bilious material. So we will be recommending IV rehydration, urgent nasogastric decompression, and having to move on to a gastrographin enema. Alright, so concluding the presentation today, I would like to kind of pick out some clinical pearls for the management of cystic fibrosis and the non-pulmonary complications. So cystic fibrosis, again, is an autosomal recessive disease that does carry a high risk of mortality associated with our pulmonary and non-pulmonary complications. Ursidiol, or UDCA, may assist in preventing the progression of cystic fibrosis-related liver disease, but we do need some larger trials to assist us in having long-term data for use. Pancreatic insufficiency is managed with the use of Pancreatic Enzyme Replacement Therapy, or PERT, that is individualized to each individual patient in order to prevent malabsorption of fat. And for those individuals with an episode of DIOS, they should receive aggressive bowel regimens possibly including gastrographin, in order to prevent surgical procedures.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.